Um, my monk's name is Ajahn Jayasaro, and the word Jayasaro is from the ancient Pali language, uh, which is the language used by the Lord Buddha. And the, the word Jayasaro means victory, one who has victory over evil, victory over defilements. And so monks always have very inspiring names to, uh, to give them um, some energy to live their life as, as well as they can. Now I, I was born in a very backward country. Um, I say very backward country because there were no Buddhist monasteries um, and no opportunity um, when I grew up to be able to meet with monks and listen to monks. Um, but fortunately, I, um, as a boy, I, say, I can say fortunately, um, I was very ill. I had asthma from the age of 18 months until I was 14 years old. And so I missed school a lot. And so I think I became much more educated than many of my friends. <clears throat> because if in England, if you're a boy and you go to school, you know, you don't, um, you play a lot and uh, you tend to be rather mischievous. And um, if you read the books a lot, you can get bullied, unfortunately. But I love to read and to think, and I like to be by myself. And I spent a lot of time uh, reading, and it's a habit that um, has uh, given me great um, joy in my life, and uh, one that um, I can heartily recommend uh, to all of you. Um, reading, in, you have a book and it's a friend. Wherever you go, you have a friend, and it's a friend who can uh, educate you and entertain you, and if you yourself are interested in, in writing and expressing yourself, then reading the works of great writers is the very best way to absorb their style and to be able to, um, to write yourself. So I was a great reader, and I started to, um, to think about many things that young people don't usually think about so much. And I, I share with you one or two um, experiences um, as a young boy. Um, I would get attacked, everybody I'm sure knows what asthma I'm sure is, I'm sure many people in Bhutan have this illness also. So I, I would um, have attacks late at night and where it would be very difficult to breathe. Um, and you breathe, and every single in-breath is just like climbing a mountain, you know. <laughs> and you get to the top of the mountain, then you fall all the way down, and then you have to start all over again and climb another mountain. It's the next breath. It's very tiring and very unpleasant. And, and of course, my, my parents um, would do everything they, they could for me. Um, but one night, um, an attack of asthma came on, and I just felt so 
lonely and, and sorry for myself and then I was going to call out to uh, my parents because I wanted some comfort and uh, our house was a, a bungalow, just a one one level house. So they were in the in the uh, the lounge watching television. And as I was about to call out to my mother and my father, I heard them laughing. They were watching some comedy program, and they were laughing. And I thought, why why should I I call them? They they are enjoying themselves and. And then I thought, you know, even if I, I call them, what, what can they do for me, really? They can hold my hand or uh, they can come, but it's not really that helpful. And, and then I was about eight years old at this time, and I remember thinking, you know, when you're really suffering, you're on your own. You know, there's nothing in but even the, the people who love you the most in the world they can't really do very much for you. It's really up to you. So this was something that to stay with me and, and stay with me to the present day. Um, that it, we, we try to create the warm and loving and kind relationships in our families and communities as best we can. And this adds to the quality of our life for sure. But you know, at the end of the day, in the really important things in life, you're on your own. Even if you're in a room with other people, you know, when you get sick, and as you get old, and all the, the most important things in life, you're, you're on your own. And we have, and this is a challenge as a human being, that we have to be able to create and sustain these inner resources um, that we all have. And these inner resources we, we, we cannot access um, very easily. They, it comes through a training and an education and through effort. Now we could compare it with water, water which is lying below the ground. And now no matter how much pure water there is, unless you dig a well, you, won't, you can't drink that water. So, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's meaningless. It's there, but you have to make the effort to, uh, to reach it and to drink it. And so many of the most important and valuable things in life um, are only realized through effort. I had another experience um, when I was 10 years old. Um, as I said, I, I often I, I couldn't go to school. And um, I, do, I don't quite know how I developed this habit, but um, when, during the day, when my mother would go to the market, to the shops, I would go into my parents' bedroom and there was a big mirror and I would stand in front of the mirror and just stare into my eyes. I don't know how I, I decided to do this, but I, I got addicted, I could say. Every, whenever my mum wasn't, I was too embarrassed to do it when she was at home. But I would, I would stare and stare and stare and stare. And then what happened, suddenly, I was on the, on the ceiling and I was looking down at my body, looking in the mirror. 
it was the most wonderful experience and it gave me the the conviction yes I'm not just my body you know I'm not there's something um, which is mysterious and wonderful and strange and something that you can't uh, study in books about science there's, there are things that are um, that can only be realized when your mind becomes very quiet so we have such busy noisy minds you know and if you're looking have you ever looked in your mind and just see how much junk there is you know you think 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 all day you know and when you don't have anything to think about you've got to find something you know and and we wonder why we get tired and and stressed and anxious um, it's because uh, we have not um, embarked on even the most basic uh, or principle of mental hygiene. Now, physical hygiene, we all know, you know, we should have a bath regularly, and, and we know, you know, or you know your friends, maybe you don't know yourself, but if someone doesn't bathe, you know, you can smell them, you know. And so we're, this is something which makes us very diligent and... Uh, uh, we're not very lazy about uh, washing and bathing because we'd be embarrassed to go to school and be afraid that people would oh damn, that's, that's, you know. So we have some immediate feedback, you know, if we don't keep our body clean. But uh, we don't have that feedback if we don't keep our minds clean. You know, it's just normal, you know. And some people, not only do they think all day, then when it comes time, time to go to sleep, they can't sleep because of the momentum of the thinking, it just won't stop. So you have so many people who have sleep problems. And then some people, you know, they can sleep, but what do they do when they, they dream? <laughs> so, you know, there's no real rest in the mind. So, in, in Buddhism we say we need to have a um, to deal with our minds a lot more skillfully and we need to develop strategies and uh, methods of caring for our minds and I think we can all of us see in our education in our studies that our emotions are not something separate from the learning process. Um, you, you, maybe some of you, and, or you may know you have friends who are so smart and they're so clever um, and they, uh, they can understand and memorize um, so many things, but when it comes to testing, um, the day of the test, they're so worried, so anxious, even though they revise so well, you think, well, if I was to fail, what would happen? My parents would be so upset, and and then you start to imagine this sort of like a uh, like a movie. You know, you come and you come home, you failed your exam, and your your mum's crying, your dad's angry, and you know, and and so because you never trained yourself to let go of thinking, you don't have you've never trained your mind in that kind of way. Uh, it's like you're a slave of thought. You have no inner freedom. And that's a very sad thing, and it doesn't need to be like that. 
So it's not that um, as, as a Buddhist or a Buddhist meditator, you say thinking is bad and I shouldn't think anymore. Of course not. It's not possible anyway. But if we um, turn the light within, usually it's like we're shining the light outside all the time. We shine the light in. Who's, who's the person who's like holding the torch? And, and we look at ourselves and what actually do we spend our time thinking about um, throughout the day? What, what fills up all these hours of the day? And it's quite shocking just how much of the thought is just junk and how much of it is positively poisonous or toxic. You know, if, you, if somebody has said something or done something to upset you, you know, and you just think over and over and over again, you know, how could they do this? That's just so bad and it's just so... And, and why, why think like that? What, what possible benefit? does it have? You know, does it make you feel better? No. Uh, but it's a, it's a kind of addiction, again. And the addiction to thought and to mental and the negative mental activity um, is something that um, we have to face up to and nobody else can deal with this but you yourself. But if you want to experience any lasting sense of well-being, or happiness in your life, it's absolutely essential that you, you deal with this. Now, in the, um, in the modern age where there are so many stresses and strains, and you're all going to be meeting these more and more in the future, so much pressure on you, um, pressure of work, pressure of expectation, um, and the, the world is getting faster and faster. Um, change, the world is, it, it's the, the nature to change, but the rate of change is increasing all the time. Now if you look at the way that people lived in Bhutan from, say, 500 years ago until 50 years ago, hardly any difference, I would say. If somebody from 50 years ago was to go in a time machine and go back 500 years, they probably would hardly notice any change at all. They would just fit in. But just look at the changes, even in a quiet country like Bhutan, um, that have taken place in Timpu, just in your lifetime. Um, political changes, changes of technology. Just think that in this world, um, the internet has only been in the world for, what, 20 years? And huge changes in, in human consciousness uh, that have occurred because of internet and computers, personal computers. It's probably the most single significant um, technology since the printing press in the 15th century. And uh, mobile phones and communication and texting and um, Sometimes I, I tease people in Thailand because often when they speak to monks, they say, I'm very interested in meditation, but, you know, it's so difficult. I have such a busy life. I don't have the time for meditation. And then you see these people all the time, texting, and they say, what are they really, you know, how important is what they're texting about? You know, how much time we, we spend on trivial things? So, 
you know, one of the truths um, of our life as human beings, which everybody in, in the whole world will surely accept, is that one day we're all going to die. Mm. But if you look at the way most people live their lives, it's uh, as if we're never going to die, as if we've got huge amounts of time, and time's not an issue. Um, but it is. And, and if you ask um, your elders and your parents and grandparents, um, almost everybody will say it feels that the older you get, the quicker time passes. Um, so it, it's not something that you can necessarily measure with clocks and watches. And time is so, so precious. Um, I, I was telling a, a group the other day, a, a, another episode from my life, I, you know, when I left home in 19, in the mid-1970s, um, I went to, I was in India for a year, Iran, and almost two years before I returned home, and then after a few months, I went to Thailand to become a monk, and it was six years before I returned to visit my family for the first time. And in those days, there was, you know, we didn't have telephones, uh, we didn't have, um, obviously we didn't have Skype, we didn't have email, all those kinds of things hadn't been invented, and even if they were, they probably wouldn't um, have them in monasteries. And I would write an e uh, I would write an airmail letter once every week or two weeks, and um, try to keep in touch that way. But um, when I returned um, after six years, um, I was sitting in, in the car with my parents. They came to pick me up in the monastery um, and to take me home for a visit. And for two or three years, when I was a teenager, I didn't have a, a very happy family life. had a lot of conflicts with my parents, and they were mostly about my hair and my clothes. I had long hair, and my parents said my clothes... You know, we didn't all, all so beautifully turned out as in, in England. And I was uh, in a group, you know, we used to call the hippies. So it was like a hippie and has long hair and very eccentric clothes. and. Um, and my, my, my parents were so unhappy about this. Um, and I remember one day I, I went to the local town and I saw my mother coming. And uh, she saw me and she was so ashamed, she crossed to the other side of the road so nobody would know that, she was, that I was her son. Now, if you ask her today whether that's true, she said, no, 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 no. <laughs> she's, um, she's censored it from her memory now, but um, I, I think it was true. So, um, but of course the, the irony, and like the joke, if you like, was after all this uh, poem about my hair, and I, you know, for me, it's, for as young person, it's a symbol, you know, this is my hair, it's not my parents' hair. Who are you to tell me? What? You know, and um, so after all this, what happened? I shaved it all off and became a monk, you know? And, uh, and uh, I remember um, when I, before I went to Thailand, I shaved my, my hair off and, and my parents, I, I tried to explain some of the teachings of the Buddha to my parents, just very simply. I thought the Buddha is, is a middle way. You know, so, 
And my mother said, I no, I think you've got that wrong. I said, I said, why? We said, well, you know, before you had such long hair, and now you've got no hair. <laughs> That's not the middle. The middle way you should have just a, like a right amount of hair, like your father. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, we were sitting in the car and, and driving, uh, driving back to my home, and I was thinking, oh, what a shame, you know. Uh, now, looking back on it, that my childhood and my adolescence, that time I lived with my parents, you know, it, it, it seemed to drag. So be, when I was a teenager, I was thinking, when can I leave home? When can I leave home? You know, I'm just looking forward to a time when I can be independent and by myself. Um, and now looking back on it, I thought, my, my childhood is, is gone. My adolescence is gone. And how much of it I wasted um, with the silly argument about my hair. You know, when I'm going to spend the rest of my life with no hair, you know, it seems so stupid now. And just while I was thinking about this, my mother turned round, she was sitting on the front seat, and she said, do you know what I've been thinking? I've been thinking, what a shame how stupid I was to be, make such a fuss about your hair when you were, uh, when you were at home. You know, I never, I never imagined that you were only ever going to live with, with us um, for 16 or 17 years. I just assumed, you know, like most sons, that you would be close by and you would always be there. And, and so we, I wasted, we wasted those years. Um, and, and now they've gone, and I feel great regret that there was such a bad feeling and resentment and unhappiness over such a small, small thing. And, and I, I share this with you because I know it's, um, when we have some problem with, uh, with those around us, you know, we lose our sense of perspective and things can seem so, so important. But to be able just to stand back a bit from that just to say, is it really worth it, given the fact that our lives together are so short and so uncertain? Um, and how can we use this, um, this short time we live together uh, to make each other as happy as we can, um, and to make compromises, um, and to be... Uh, you see, once you start setting up like uh, adversaries and, and enemies, you know, then uh, every small concession is like you, you've lost, you know, you've lost a battle in the war. And when you turn things over and you find that if you're willing to make some concession, um, then the other side makes concessions and it's a lot more um, peaceful and happy way of living, isn't it? Now, um, I wanted to tell you a story today um, because I know that uh, I haven't seen really with my own eyes, but I know that archery um, is a very popular pastime. Do uh, are any of you archers here? Do you? Is anybody? Uh, no archers. Well, anyway, I tell you my archery story, and um, another country. Um, in which uh, archery is um, is very popular 
and it, in which it has a very uh, deep association with Buddhism is Japan and it's one of the Zen arts and there was a great teacher in Japan with many many disciples and he was getting old and then a young man um, came and joined him and, and asked to become his student and his disciple and it turned out that this young man was just a natural like a, a genius you know he didn't have to train very hard he just some he was born with this gift for archery and uh, before very long he had a number of friends and um, like followers and he started to get very puffed up and very arrogant because he'd never had to struggle in his life everything came so easily that um, he you know he thought he was special and I just share also with you this observation that when we um, study something whether it's an academic study, uh, study or some other skill if you find it very difficult and you have to put a lot of work in sometimes you know you feel jealous of someone who can do everything very easily but in actual fact it's not so sure who, who has the better deal because that that um, willingness to put forth effort into something which is worthwhile again and again and again even if it's difficult it just makes you grow so much as a human being whereas when everything comes just very easily you don't have to put any effort you know you just take it for granted um, and if you look at uh, many sports you know you find whether uh, whatever sports you follow you find these these uh, um, people who are like geniuses from when they're very young but some of them because they don't have the inner strength then when they get rich and famous they lose their gift because they don't putting the work in and they take it for granted whereas others maybe not the natural genius but because they train so hard every day that in the long run they become the better player and they get chosen for the team above the person with the natural gift so that, that's just a thought of so this in this story this young man was one of these very arrogant uh, puffed up young men who think I'm the new generation you know these old guys you know they're 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 the past and um, you know they think they're so great but really you know I'm better so this young man started to think he was better than his teacher and uh, he said I can you know, hit a, a target at so many hundred yards and you know, even a teacher he couldn't do as well as that and so there started to be some conflict in the archery club um, and the, the association and eventually um, in the course of a meeting between the teacher and his student the teacher said I, I understand that you, you think that you are, your skill as an archer um, now exceeds that of the teach of, of myself, your teacher. Is that correct? And he said, Well, chef, you know, it's like <laughs> kind of uh, rather pleased to know that uh, the teacher recognizes him. And so the, the teacher said, Well, you know, I think to make this uh, like official and so that there's not so, so many bad feeling around, we should have like a, a contest. And then um, if you defeat me, 
uh, then you know you can take over and everyone can recognize you as the um, as the new teacher and he said yeah and uh, you know if it was like modern American and you say whatever that's what people say these days so they have a, a contest but the the teacher he says there's just one thing that I choose where we have the contest he said yeah I know that um, ex expecting this, um, this big um, open area where all the targets are set up and uh, so they arrive and there's so many people come for this contest and the and the master says to the student okay come with me and he said well aren't, aren't we shooting our arrow? no come with me and he climbed the mountain climb 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 really up high and then they came to this um, ravine like a very very deep drop for hundreds and hundreds of feet and there's this rickety little ladder and um, sort of laid down um, and so the the master he just very naturally and normally walked into the middle uh, of this deep deep drop and he's standing on this this rickety ladder and he just was like this and the, and the arrow just shoots straight into uh, a small tree like a hundred meters away um, absolutely marvelous shot and um, and it turns out that he, he there had been a target had been pinned to this tree beforehand and so he said to uh, the young man your turn and so the young man is suddenly he looks down, it's a long way down, you know, and, he, and he's afraid of heights and he's a bit uh, worried and his body is shaking with the, the fear and he put a foot on the ladder and it's not very stable and, 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 and he said, I can't do this, this you're cheating, I, 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 I'm not, and um, he concedes defeat. And so the master uh, takes this as an opportunity to give him a teaching and he said you know when everything's going well and you know you're in a situation that you're familiar with and you're doing something that you've always done in a way that you've always done before and you've got everything around you supporting you um, you know uh, you can be excellent I, I acknowledge that in those conditions you're an excellent archer but life is not like that um, it's very rarely that you have all the conditions set up in exactly the way that you want them. There's always something that's not quite right. There's always something unexpected, something that takes place, you know, just before an exam you get a stomach bug, or just before the exam you get some bad news, or you break up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, or some, just suddenly, you know, something that wasn't in the plan. It happens all the time. Um, but it, I mean, if you say, well, now I can't do this anymore because it's not the way I thought it would be, then um, you, you may still be technically excellent, but you're not a master, you know. And, and a master is someone who can adapt to the situation. And this ability to adapt and to be able to apply knowledge in any situation this is the mark of the sage or the wise person. Um, not that you have to control the situation and control the people around you and only then can you be happy and content. Uh, it just, it's too stressful to do that and you can't 
You can't do it very well. And so someone who, who has that inner uh, skill and ability to maintain this emotional stability and clarity of mind and wakefulness is someone uh, who is very um, uh, quick-minded. And a phrase that I like a lot is someone who is, we say mindful, meaning present, in the present moment, awake and aware in the present moment. Such a person has many choices. But someone who is not mindful, who allows some emotion of greed or anger or jealousy or fear to take over their mind, they have very few choices. And if you notice, if you get very angry or very fearful or very anxious, you can't think very clearly, can you? You just react. You just do things according to habit. You become a creature of habit. But someone who has trained their mind, their mind has both that strength and flexibility. And uh, that is a mind which knows right now what is the correct way. Because in our lives, there's no, there's no kind of textbook that you can follow. You know, you're in a situation, sometimes you should be the leader, you know? And sometimes you should be the follower. Sometimes you should be the person who speaks up. And sometimes you should be the person who keeps quiet. Sometimes you have to agree, and sometimes you should disagree. And there's no, you can't find this in any book. It will tell you, in this situation you should do this, and that situation you should do that. Because life is too complex. You can't decide beforehand. If you do, you just become too rigid. Um, and in history, you can see again and again, when, when uh, people and countries become too rigid, um, then um, they, um, they, they suffer great um, disasters. Um, British Empire, even, is an uh, example the, um, the great um, center for British power in Asia during the early 20th century was Singapore. Thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers and, and um, munitions in Singapore. And in the Second World War, the Japanese uh, were going to invade um, Singapore. Everybody knew this was probably going to happen. Now, the British military were absolutely convinced that the only way to invade Singapore was by sea, that it was just not possible for an army to invade through Malaysia. It was just too difficult. The conditions were too difficult. So nearly all of the guns, the British guns, were all pointed out to sea. And then the Japanese did exactly the thing that the British thought they couldn't do and they invaded from the back, and they couldn't get their guns moved around, and they couldn't rearrange their forces in time. And within a matter of hours or days, um, the, the British force was captured. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were captured, and some of them, many of them died and were treated very badly, and many of the British soldiers ended up what we call the Death Railway in, in Thailand, building this railway through the jungle to Burma. So that's just one example from the study of history where people have this kind of fixed way of doing things and fixed ideas. It's like this, and then they're unable to respond in time to change. 
so in any uh, in our personal lives and in our uh, in our in our country and we have so many challenges in the modern world and mostly um, people will fall into extreme so you have like the conservative extreme and like the liberal conservative extreme is this is the way we do things like we're English or we're Thai or we're Bhutanese and we've done these things for hundreds of years if it was good enough for our parents and good enough for our grandparents it's good enough for us you see that's like the and, and when you, you hear old people they say oh these days it's not like the old days the old days and the old days the golden age it was so wonderful you know and you say well, did you have electricity? Did you have running water? And no, but it was, and you know, it's hard to imagine just, and did you have hospitals? And Well, no, but oh, it was so, everybody was so kind and so, but didn't you have wars? And didn't you have, well, yeah, but it was so wonderful in the old days. This is like, in every country, you know, this is a, like the conservative uh, view. And then you have the new age, all this stuff, you know, it's just, pointless it's just you know no meaning to it it's just past its my date and it's um you know it's just for um old people you know we're the new generation we're going to create a new country and a new society and it's all going to be new and everything that's new is better than something that's old why is it better because it's new <laughs> why is that worse well it's because it's old uh, uh, and so this is this is also like superstition. You know, there's a superstition that the old is always better than the new, and there's a superstition that the new is always better than the old. So what is there a middle way? And the Buddha said, yes, the middle way is say you have to understand your culture, you have to understand your history, and you have to say this is what's really essential. This is what really makes us who we are. This is what we're really proud of. And this is what we have to care for. These other elements, not so important, or maybe they're even not so good. And that it is better to be, uh, be free of those things. Um, I don't think we, we want to go back to a time like before antibiotics, um, or before cars, you know, or before electricity. <laughs> In the material world, there's so many things, obviously, that are, um, uh, we're really blessed to have in, our, in modern age. But what we do need to do is not just to worship our culture, but we need to nourish it. It's like a plant that we've kept alive for a long time. We have to water it and care for it. We have to know exactly why it's so important to us. Not just because, well, it's because it's our culture. But say, yes, but why is it our culture? And why, why do we love it so much? Why are we so proud that this is our culture? and that we want to, because if we don't understand it, then uh, we won't be able to do that properly. It will just become like, a, uh, like a, uh, a form with no life in it. Like a, sometimes you see in the forest the, the trees that die, and they can stand there like dead trees in the jungle in Thailand, see like maybe 10, 20 years, and the, the tree's been dead, but it hasn't fallen over yet. There's, um, there's a story about a, a, a monastery um, in which the abbot of the monastery, he had a cat. 
and he loved this cat very much. Um, but whenever they had the service and the chanting and the ritual and the meditation in the hall, he would have to leave the cat in his room. And the cat would be very unhappy um, and would start scratching things and making a noise. And so uh, the abbot decided the only way is for the cat to come into the hall. But because he was, uh, you know, he was the abbot's cat, not, not just an ordinary cat, you know, everybody wanted to give some kind of special respect for the abbot's cat. So when they come into the, the into the hall, they would do this in this uh, very special way. They would walk in like in a procession with the abbot at the at the head and the senior monks, and going, and it would all be done in a very beautiful way. So now they included the cat in the process, and they had this beautiful cushion, very embroidered cushion, and then someone would have a special job, and everybody would want this job very much. It was a very great honor to carry the cushion with the cat. Um, and it would walk just behind the abbot. And um, so this became part of the life in the monastery, and monks died, and monks left, and new monks came, and nobody actually knew why the cat was brought in. And the reason was just very simple, that when the cat was left in the room, he scratched everything, knocked things over, and made a noise, and, and the abbot wanted him to come. But people didn't know this. And then eventually the abbot died, and and now um, the carrying the cat into the the hall became the ritual, and people thought it was very holy. And they thought that if we don't carry the cat in on the cushion, and maybe some very bad things will happen to the monastery. The lightning will hit the monastery, or, or uh, there will be no food for the monks anymore. And and so this new ritual came from a completely irrational reason. And this is what happens with rituals. Rituals can be very wonderful things. They can, they can give you a lot of inspiration. You can feel rapture. So there's tears in your eyes if you, if you know how to practice with your mind in a, in a ritual and you really, there's some good reason. But rituals tend to grow. You know, and they, they grow these accretions and, and things that weren't there in the first place, but people don't know. And, and, and nobody wants to stop doing a ritual that's been done in, already in case some terrible thing happens. So, um, ritual is a good example of something which has a very, uh, it has a, play, a part to play. It's like, let me say like a, a building, you know, if buildings had no decoration, you know, it would just be like a box, and it's kind of depressing. You see this beautiful decoration here, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not so elaborate here, but in, in, in more beautiful buildings, in the songs and so on. Just think if the, if the song or the, or the great buildings in Bhutan, if they were just like boxes with no color and no decoration, how miserable that would be, yeah? You would, it wouldn't be a beautiful place to live. You see it, you just feel kind of, yeah. But if you see, a, you see the song, maybe not so much for you, but for me coming from another country, it's, oh, it's so beautiful, you know. Um, and that's a, that's a lovely thing. So, um, my, I'm making a comparison here, is like the rituals in the religion are like the decoration, you know. If there was no ritual, it'd be kind of dull and, and, and uninteresting 
and not lifting, uh, not uplifting to your heart. But if you didn't have it, you'd still have the building, you know. And you you don't you need to distinguish between uh, the decoration and the external part of the building and the body of the building. You know, the actual the the size of the building, the quality of the floor and the space and the, and all these things, and not to um, put too much emphasis on just one aspect. So the heart of the Buddhist teaching um, is the training and the education of our life. Um, how can we live a life free from suffering and its causes? How can we live a life where we're experiencing happiness and its causes? How can we create happiness for ourselves and for our families and our communities? How can we uh, create welfare and benefit uh, for ourselves and our families and our communities? Buddhism is a, um, gives us teachings which are not dogmas, uh, meaning not things you just have to believe because you're a Buddhist. They're not things you just worship and, and pay. They're like tools it's, or, or like a medicine, you know. So if, you, if a doctor was to give you this fantastic medicine, you have an illness and this medicine will clear up your illness and you've got this bottle of medicine and then you put it up onto a shrine and every day you bow to the bottle of medicine. You know, and you and you light some butter lamp and you chant in front of the medicine. Well, that's not a very good way of using the medicine, is it? Or maybe you put it on a chain around your neck, you know. <laughs> or maybe you just read the um, read the inscription and you memorize it, and you can you can be very proud. I I know all the words and the inscription on the medicine bottle by heart. You know, but that's not the point. The point is that you open the medicine bottle and you eat the, you eat the medicine and you cure yourself. So as Buddhists we have these teachings and they're like medicine or they're like tools and we have to find this, the practical heart of the Buddhist teachings because these are the things that in the long run will give rise to true happiness and welfare in our lives. So I would like to end my talk at this point talks rather longer than I thought, um, and I would like to offer opportunity for uh, anyone who has some questions or would like to bring anything up for discussion. It doesn't have to be about the talk that I just gave, it can be about any other topic that you would like to, to speak about. It 
in order to uh, attend Buddhahood and to promote and bring them to the next level, uh, is it necessary for us to join the monastery body? To join the monastery? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, in, in, in some religions, the, um, the religious figures uh, are considered to be like a bridge, say, between God and the ordinary people. Um, in, in Buddhism, uh, the, the person who lives a monastic life, it, it means it's someone who's made the, the special commitment in saying that I want to give my whole life to this and, and not to compromise in any way. You know, um, I, it's so important for me to follow the Buddhist teachings that um, I put it before any other kind of ordinary um, happiness and achievement. But there, you know, there's not so many people um, who really feel that way. And if Buddhism was only for people who lived in the monastery, then Buddhism would have died away a long, long time ago. Um, so uh, the idea is that um, we, we try to apply the Buddha's teachings in our life, uh, no matter what our situation is. And the Buddha said that uh, we all bear within us, like the, the we can say, the, the seed of Buddhahood or the seed of enlightenment. And that means whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, no difference. We all have the same capacity. And we can prove that um, capacity very simply. If you look in your life, can you think of any bad habit that you had in the past, which now you don't have anymore, or it's not so strong. Something that before, you know, you um, and it was really, you knew it was bad, and you tried to, but eventually you could give it up. And can you think of an example? I think almost everybody, even in a short life, like there's some something you say, yeah, before that was a real problem for me, but now it's much better. And is there anything in your life also that you see something really good in your life now, some good habit, some good thing that you can say, one or two years ago or three years ago, uh, I couldn't do that. I didn't, I, I, that wasn't there. That good thing wasn't present. Now, if you can see these two examples, one of some bad habit that is now, has now disappeared or is much weaker, and some good habit that was not there before and is now, you have a very simple proof of our human capacity for change. And then the question that we ask ourselves from this is, if that bad habit, if I could get rid of that bad habit and have victory over that bad habit, why can't I have victory over all the other bad habits? And you say, if I can, uh, I can make this good thing, this one good thing appear in my life, why can't I, I produce and develop all the other good things? And the Buddha says, you can. You can, if you're willing to put the time 
and the effort into doing it. And that's not something which is dependent on living in a monastery. You know, it's, some people uh, join monasteries and waste their time. You know, they don't study very hard, and some people just hang out with their friends and just uh, waste their time. Um, so it's not necessarily, um, you know, uh, because of a robe or, or you know, be called a monk or a nun. It's more your sincerity and your effort to develop yourself in your life using the Buddha's teaching, which is the important point. Um, how can we keep our mind in one direction to hold on with concentration? Sorry, can you repeat? How can we keep our mind in one direction to hold on with the Concentration, yes. Um, what, what we need um, is an anchor for our mind, uh, which is what we generally call a, a meditation object. And um, when we have a meditation object, then um, we find that we can't stay with it very easily or very often and our mind wanders away but then when it wanders away after a while we realize or we, we become distracted or we're thinking or, or, we, um, or something in the past or in the future and then what we do is we bring the mind back to our object let's say in my tradition we use the sensation of the breath you know, you, there's one point usually in your nose or nostril here where you can feel the breath very clearly and that becomes your, your anchor, that becomes your home base as it were. Um, and so every time that your mind wanders off, you very patiently, um, resolutely bring it back and start again and again and again and again. And to begin with, uh, you can think, oh, your mind will hardly stay with the sensation of your breath for more than a second or two. But what you find is, after a certain amount of time, if you do this regularly, then the length of time that you are aware of the sensation of the breath, so you're awake in the present moment, it increases. And the amount of distraction decreases. And so, um, you know, we sometimes talk about meditation as some kind of mystical um, endeavor and we think of monks in caves and in faraway places, but initially it's a very simple and basic technique of lengthening your attention span. We know these days attention span is very short. Um, so how, how t practically speaking do you lengthen your attention span so you can just stay with one thing um, as long as you want. And there's no uh, like secret technique or esoteric teaching. It's just basic hard work. You're willing to just do this. The mind goes off somewhere and you bring it back. And it goes somewhere and you bring it back. And through this effort you get to know your mind a lot better because you begin to notice the kind of places your mind likes to go when it gets lost. Um, and why it gets lost. And, and you begin to understand the different emotions and how they take over your mind and what they're like and how they work. 
So it, it is the most uh, wonderful um, study of human psychology, not, not as a, um, in a textbook, but you, oh, this is what anger is like, this is what boredom is like, this is what worry is like. And you're, not only are you seeing these things in yourself, but you're developing the means of dealing with them um, intelligently. Um, and you begin to see that these things are not who you really are. They're just things that pass into your mind and pass out, out again. So you can say, in a way, you have a choice in your life, you know, the way you make your mind. There's two kind of made models. One is you make your mind like the sky, and one is you make your mind like a sponge. You, you know, like a sponge. If you, a sponge, it just absorbs everything, keeps it there. You know, and that's how most people's minds are. You know, and if you absorb poisons and colors and toxins, then you get a very poisonous, smelly sponge, and you get a very toxic mind. But the the second model is you make the mind like the sky. It doesn't mean it's empty. You know, in the sky, there's always things there. There are clouds, and there are birds, and maybe even airplanes, and there's wind, and things are just passing through in a very natural way. But even though there's that kind of activity, the sky itself doesn't change. The sky is just the sky. And this is the um, kind of feeling you begin to develop after meditation. You don't react to things uh, in the same way. Now, if you, if you haven't trained your mind, let's, let's say sponge mind, let's say somebody says, oh, you, you've cut your hair, you look so handsome today. Yes. Oh, and you feel good for a long time. Um, or somebody says, says to you, oh, you look so beautiful today. You know? and, and, you, and you know you look just the same as you did yesterday, but still you, you feel really good. You know? And then somebody else comes along and says, oh, I don't like the way you cut your hair. That looks really... That doesn't look cool at all, you know. And so he's just really, oh, depressed. And somebody says to him, I don't like that skirt. That's really, that doesn't suit you at all. And he's, oh. Yes. And this, just how often, you know, your mind just go up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and it's like if you were going on a journey, you know, if you're going through the mountains, you're climbing a mountain, going down the valley, coming, you get tired very easily. But if you have this presence of mind, and it's a skyline, oh, this is praise. And you know, oh, this is praise. Someone's praising me. This is how praise feels. Oh, someone's criticizing. So you know praise is just praise. Criticism is just criticism. Sometimes something we can learn from. Um, but we don't allow it to uh, take over our mind or to condition our mind. You see? Um, and, and, and so when I say the mind's like the sky, it's just like there's an aeroplane that's going through. This is aeroplane is called praise, and this aeroplane is called uh, criticism. And they're just natural things that happen in our life. And we don't have to take everything so seriously. Yeah. So this is, you know, an ideal, but you're only able to do that when you put this work uh, into the meditation, this work of training the mind of letting go of memory and imagination and fantasy and all these things you recognize and you just very gently put it down and come back to the breath or your meditation object it goes up again and you bring it back and so uh, i would like to compare it with um 
you have a small child, you know when a child is just starting to crawl and he doesn't know what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. So you're doing some work, it's your job to look after your younger brother or sister and um, and you're doing some schoolwork or something um, and then you just sort of have the, uh, have the baby, you know, just in the corner of your eye and then, oh, there he goes again, he's wandering off and he's going to bang his head or he's going to fall over, so you go and you say, oh, no, come back here and then you go back to your work and then and and you don't get angry with the child with the baby because you know it's just normal for a baby you know how can how can you expect a baby to to know what's right and what's wrong and what's uh, safe and what's dangerous so even though you have to keep bringing the baby back again and again you get a bit tired but uh, it's all right because it's just normal for for baby and and so with the meditation, you know, don't get angry with yourself or upset with yourself because your mind uh, won't be peaceful. You think it's just like baby, it's baby mind. You know, it likes crawling here and crawling there, it's just what babies do. But, you know, if you're very, very patient, then you can teach your mind. Um, and, and learning how to teach and to train your mind is the most important of all life skills. Okay, I'm going to tell you now something about uh, monk's life in Thailand. And monk's life in Thailand is, uh, uh, we li I live in a forest, and um, we get up very early in the morning, and uh, at dawn, we walk into the local village with a bowl, and uh, people put the food in our bowl. And we come back, and uh, about 8 o'clock in the morning, we, we have our meal. And we only eat one time every day. So it's usually in the monastery about 8 or 8.30 in the morning. And that's it for 24 hours. It's actually, I think, easier in a hot country than in a cold country. So I understand why in cold countries they make some adaption for this. But still, um, I'm in a cold country and I, I, I follow this. Um, but when I'm traveling, I um, don't always have my meal at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, I can have it at 11 o'clock in the morning, but there's one rule I have to keep. I have to finish everything before 12 o'clock. Now, the clock tells me it's 10 to 11. So I'm enjoying my uh, meeting with all of you, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to say goodbye because if I don't get to the restaurant and have my meal before 12 o'clock, I'm going to have to go hungry till tomorrow. Um, so I think maybe we'll have to uh, end the session um, this morning. Thank you for your attention and your patience and uh, I hope that I've been able to um, share some things with you which will be of use in your life and your studies.